0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 12:30 to 3, 7:70. CHQR. All right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, So I guess three uh, COVID-related issues I want to get to uh, off the top in this this hour. So we've got uh, word of the approval of the Moderna vaccine in Canada. So that's, I think, objectively good news, encouraging news. Uh, We've got some further developments in the United Kingdom concerning uh, virus variants, which is, well, not sure how to categorize that, Um, somewhat worrying. And then we've got Alberta's COVID situation, which is kind of a mixed bag. Uh, Certainly, the the numbers remain higher than we would like them to be. However, we have seen over the past few days, maybe over the past week or so, kind of a leveling off, maybe even a a bit of a a decline in terms of active cases, the number of new cases each day, the positivity rate, but still some worries about hospitalizations and and deaths are are certainly, I, I think, much higher than we'd like to see them still. So, joining us to talk about these uh, three issues, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Doctor Lenora Saxinger, Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine, the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alberta. Uh, Doctor Saxinger, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks. So, let's start with with word now that we've got a second vaccine uh, approved in Canada, second vaccine in our arsenal. Hopefully, more to come. But uh, your thoughts on the approval of the Moderna vaccine, and, and you know where we see some advantages in, in this particular vaccine.
1: Well, I think it's absolutely fantastic to have another vaccine. And the the biggest, they're kind of very similar, really, in terms of how well we expect them to work and how they work. But the main difference is that the Moderna vaccine is a little bit easier to distribute more widely. And so this is a vaccine that, you know, it will be much more doable to get out to more places to start a vaccine um, rollout in community settings instead of in very specialized, very cold freezer settings, if that makes sense.
0: Right. And that's the challenge with the Pfizer vaccine is it has to be stored in, in really, really, really cold temperatures. I, I mean, I heard it put one way that, you know, with the Pfizer vaccine, you got to bring the patient to the vaccine. With Moderna, you can kind of bring the vaccine to the patient, right? So that that's where we, we see some advantages.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the timing is a little bit different about when you go for your second shot. And there's, you know, small differences otherwise. But really, you know, from a functional point of view, I'm happy to take either. And uh, the Moderna vaccine is just a lot more transportable.
0: It is, and that's encouraging. And uh, obviously, there there are going to be further approvals down the road here. So um, there there are going to be some interesting challenges, I think, once we start talking about millions of doses, not just tens or hundreds of thousands in terms of which vaccines go where having the capacity to transport all of this, the capacity to, to keep track of all of this. So um, as exciting as this all is, it's it's not going to be easy, is it?
1: No, I mean, like, it'll be a bit of a roller coaster. I'm sure that there will be different operational issues cropping up and and functional issues. But at the end of the day, I think that there's a really good uh, network of people who are working really hard to make this quite smooth. And um, I'm I'm quite optimistic that it will ultimately end up being reasonably um, efficient, actually.
0: Now, the, the vaccine question does, does lead to the questions around what, what we're seeing in the UK. And obviously, there's a whole lot of genetic work going on to you know, figure out what kind of mutations we're seeing in this virus and, and how worrying they, they might be. There's some indication that, that some of these variants, uh, there's, there's, I guess, two. One in the UK and one in South Africa, and apparently the latter has made its way to the UK. These are maybe more transmissible um, versions of, of the virus, but in terms of, of defeating or getting around our, our vaccine arsenal, I guess there's, there's still reason for optimism at this point, is it?
1: Yeah, the vaccines seem to get a pretty broad antibody response to the spike protein. Um, And the mutations tend to be focused in very specific areas. The UK UK variant actually has quite a few different mutations, but so far most people are not thinking it's likely to change the effectiveness of the current vaccines, Um, and there's work going on to confirm that right now. So there's been some work already on different mutations and whether or not it's going to affect how well vaccines work. Um, That's all been reassuring. So it's an evolving story, but I think the other thing to know is in the worst case scenario, if there was a mutation that made the current vaccine less effective, this particular type of vaccine, it's its reasonably straightforward to change the code that you're giving and alter the vaccine a little more quickly than you would some other types of vaccines. So even the worst case scenario to me looks like something we can manage. Yeah,
0: that's a good point because, you know, the spike protein is very relevant here. That The virus has this spike protein, it's the the mechanism by which it, it essentially attaches to our cells. These mRNA vaccines, as I understand, that sort of teach our body to kind of recreate just this spike protein so we, we know how to respond to it. So it basically conditions us to have that immune response. So um, in, in this context, then, that, that that tiny little spike protein is is pretty relevant, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're basically giving our bodies the recipe for the spike and we can alter the recipe fairly easily without changing the way the vaccine has to be made to any great degree. So um, I'm thinking it's unlikely we'll have to worry about the vaccine shifting anytime really soon. But even if we did, at least this type of vaccine is pretty um, tailorable.
0: And, and I mean, you know, given that, you know, viruses mutate and we knew that this one would, that may be something that we were going to be doing anyway in a year or two years or five years from now to you know kind of come back. And do we need to tweak this virus or this vaccine? Rather, do we need another version of this vaccine? That might have been evitable anyway.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that we were all anticipating that there'd be a kind of constant flow of information, and that uh, the science has been very impressive so far. And, and I think that the science will continue to be able to adapt to to new things as they come along.
0: I'm curious too, and and this is an interesting question. You know, the the you know illness versus infection. That, that we know that these vaccines are really good at, at preventing illness. There, there is still that question. I think there's some positive signs with Moderna. And being able to prevent infection? Because I I guess if we're worried about the the virus still circulating and mutating, and maybe that becomes a more relevant question, but what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yes yeah, so I guess the the concern is that because they were measuring a clinical endpoint in the trials, like did people get sick essentially um, we didn't exclude the possibility that people might actually be exposed to the virus, maybe carry the virus for a short time before their antibody response protected them now in in actual real life, we don't think that that's a very common thing to happen that people who are considered immune usually don't seem to be driving disease spread, but because this um, because COVID has this um, nasty signature of being able to spread before people have symptoms, it's a relevant question. And as you mentioned, there is some data from the trials, although they weren't designed to address this head-on, um, that it, people were not carrying virus, were less likely to carry virus after their first shot of the vaccine than people who got the placebo. So uh, I think that it's going to become clearer as to whether or not that's really a a thing. At the moment, I think it's unlikely to be a big issue, but it's definitely worth looking into. Yeah.
0: Now, let me get some thoughts from you on, on uh, Alberta's current situation. I, I think we're all fingers crossed here, hoping that we don't see a Christmas spike like we probably saw with uh, with Thanksgiving. Um, and we, we've seen some encouraging signs in recent days. So what are your thoughts on uh, where we're at as, as we head into the Christmas break here?
1: I mean, the the measures... People have taken, um, and thank you everybody, have, have definitely caused our overall case numbers to begin to drop and our percent positivity, although it remains I mean objectively kind of horrifying compared to the way it used to be, it's actually right. on a trajectory of improvement too. So so our numbers are, are improving, the percent positivity is improving. Um, we haven't really seen the hospitalization rate, the ICU rate or the death rate like level or start to improve yet because there's this big lag time. We had a lot of cases kind of baked in uh, over the last couple of weeks that we're going to continue to see coming through into the hospital and healthcare system. And so people do have to be aware of that, that I don't think we've seen benefits in in that space yet. And I expect we will from the current numbers. But the faster we can drop the number of new cases, um, the more likely we'll be able to get healthcare back into a better functional state to address everyone else's problems as well. Um, so I, I I feel like saying that I'm really encouraged, and I am, but I also know that we're definitely not out of the woods yet.
0: Yeah, I think that, that's a good way to look at it. I mean, we saw yesterday we, we cracked, uh, you know, the 800 threshold in terms of the number of people in hospital, and, and that's, that's a scary number. We heard the story up there in Edmonton where, you know, they're moving uh, adult patients into the Stollery Children's Hospital. So the system's under considerable pressure, and you're right, we're not yet seeing those numbers come down. So that's hopefully something we're going to see in, in the coming days then.
1: Yeah, I mean we add we add patients at a fairly steady rate, but people who come in, although you know a certain number are coming in daily, um, they they often stay for one to four weeks in hospital. Yeah. So, so we have like a whole big hospital extra of COVID patients in our system right now, and it's continuing to increase, and um, and then it takes a little while to 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 decrease the numbers.
0: Well, and that's important to point out, right? And especially those who end up, you know, requiring a ventilator. Those are long hospital stays. I, I know you, we have the situations where it's it's precautionary. Someone's, you know, their oxygen level is dropped, and, and maybe they're just in and out in and out of hospital relatively quickly. But a lot of these stays, as you say, they they tend to be quite long. This this is a you know a tricky virus. So once it gets to that point, it's not a
1: a quick solution, is it? Yeah, and I mean, people can have really long-lasting ongoing health concerns that affect, yeah. uh, well, obviously affect them and their families and the whole health care system as well. So, I mean, we'll be, we'll be seeing effects from, from this surge for a long time.
0: I think so. All right, well, we'll, we'll hope for the best uh, in the coming days and weeks here. Dr. Sachsinger, appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here.
1: Thank you very much. Have a good holiday.
0: Yeah, you as well. All the best. Take care. Uh, Dr. Lenore Saxinger at the University of Alberta, Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Disease. So her thoughts on, you know, some big questions here. Progress we're making on vaccines, some of the concerns about what the virus is doing out there in the wild, and what's happening here in Alberta. So' we'll see what happens uh, over christmas, and you know let's let 's hope that you know people can be smart and sensible about it. I, I think yesterday, the Alberta government the announcement they made just to tweak the gathering rules a little bit was reasonable under the circumstances. you know you recognize that you know people are in a tough spot and and certainly there 's reason to be worried about loneliness and isolation at this time of year and so hopefully it's it's the kind of change that can address some of that without really fueling any additional spread it would be pretty disconcerting that as we get into to January we start to get closer to January eleventh that all of a sudden we realize crap we have this huge spike uh, thanks to, to Christmas so it sucks I think we all realize that but you know we're, we're we're trying to get things moving in the right direction we're trying to get to a point where whether it's January eleventh later in January However long it ends up being that you know, we can see some meaningful progress and we can start to say, OK, we did it. We can start peeling back some of these restrictions. Well, welcome to this hour. Rob Ridge with you, our final show before the Christmas break. And of course, Christmas is uh, very much a cultural institution in Canada. And it is, I think, really uh, the holiday that is both religious and secular in nature. And there's often been tension between the two. Um, But as I say, I mean, Christmas maintains a great deal of relevance for Canadians, even though theologically views have shifted in Canada in recent years and, and going back even further. In fact, our next guest has been tracking various social trends in Canada for the past 45 years, including that big theological question, does God exist? Do you believe in God? So as you might expect, uh, the numbers in 2020 look a lot different than say the numbers in 1975, but how do they compare to 10 years ago, 20 years ago? And so Why is it important? Why is it relevant, uh, you know, to understand some of those, those changes in society? Well, like I say, our next guest has been doing this for a long time. He's the guy to go to uh, when uh, wondering about these these societal trends in Canada. He's uh, Dr. Reginald Bibby, sociologist, University of Lethbridge. Dr. Bibby, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Hi, Rob. Well, it's good to talk to you. It's um, certainly been an interesting year for a lot of reasons, but... Um, it is interesting to me you know to see some of these changes and and you know maybe uh, a lot of people have, have written off uh, religion or written off belief in God, um, but you know, despite all the changes in society over the last half century, a lot of Canadians do still believe in God
2: well, what's interesting, Rob is uh, when we look at just bottom line figures, the uh, fact of the matter is we still have over sixty percent of Canadians who are saying they believe in God. But going back, for example, to 1975, uh, some 70% of uh, Canadians were saying God exists. They didn't have any doubts about it. And when it came down to downright atheism, uh, only 2% compared to 16% now. So there's certainly, uh, you know, a lot of belief out there. That's why we've been releasing this, just saying God's still doing reasonably well in the polls. Uh, but at the same time, the numbers are, have certainly slipped. Uh, one of the things I just uh, remind uh, our, our listeners of is the fact that, that uh, apart from, from atheism, and uh, as I said, right now, I don't believe in God is coming in, and this is literally, as of this month, 16% of Canadians. A lot of people have moved into an area of being a little bit uh, you know, less uh, decisive, Rob, uh, where they're saying, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have doubts, but I, I do feel I believe in God. Uh, another number that is up is I don't know whether there's a God, uh, you know, the agnosticism response, uh, but higher power, for example, uh, that kind of figures up a bit. So uh, we've tried to look at these, and these, uh, uh, this whole question in a variety of ways, and the proverbial bottom line would be that uh, large numbers continue to believe in God, but more ambivalence uh, certainly expressed relative to the 1970s. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we'll talk about some of those trends. It, you alluded to it, and it, maybe it becomes a bit of a, a quirk in, in doing this kind of research, because you have, as you say, those who might identify as spiritual, that they sort of believe in something, not necessarily a specific uh, deity. I, I guess you would also have those who are, are polytheists, those who, who believe in in gods, but not necessarily a singular god. How, how does that affect these numbers?
2: Well, I mean, we we try to uh, catch that uh, Rob right down to the uh, uh, point that in our in our latest survey, for example, as we'd had in 1975, after we we give people about six or seven possibilities, we give them a chance to write in another, and uh, we, you know, so we're, we're really trying to be pretty inclusive here. But uh, you, you know, you're touching on a, an important point that I think uh, is certainly consistent with our figures, and that's that as we as we've uh, been experiencing an increasingly diverse uh, Canada, we're also experiencing increasingly diverse expressions with respect to God. And so that's where I think, you know, we, we've moved from a lot of people simply saying, I, I I know God exists, I have no doubt about it, right through these variations about not just ambivalence, but uh, again, an explicit line, I don't believe in a personal God, but I do believe in a higher power, of some kind, that kind of thing. And uh, so, uh, I, again, that's one of the things as a backdrop for interpreting these things that, that we've been underlining actually for a number of years, uh, somewhat playfully, but I do mean it literally in terms of the the research, we've been maintaining that Canadians are increasingly pro-religious, low-religious, or no-religious. Uh, those are the three kind of categories people are falling into. And we actually asked them about that in our, our most recent survey. Uh, to what extent would you identify as being a person who is uh, embracing religion or rejecting religion or somewhere in between? And for the record, Rob, it comes in like 25% are saying they're inclined to embrace religion, about 30% rejected, 45% are saying they're somewhere in between so lots of variations in Canada, and that's showing up in the uh, uh, pointed question of uh, do you do you believe in in God or a higher power?
0: Yeah, and I do wonder how closely then the religion numbers mirror the the God numbers because. You know, I think everyone who's religious would believe in God, but not everybody who believes in God is is religious. Then,
2: sure, sure. No, and that's and it's interesting, the, by the way, I mean, when we look at people who say I have no religion, so they, you know, the, the religion. So that particular category, nonetheless, about one in four of them say that they uh, believe in God. So you they, they certainly have that category, but as you're saying, you also have it the other way around, where you're going to have people who actually are identifying with a religion and may actually be reasonably. Uh, involved as far as attendance, and yet at the same time uh, they 're falling into at least the category of saying, "Well, I have doubts but i but I do uh, believe in God, so uh, lots of variation I mean we all know rob the the, the name of the game in Canada these days is uh, is choice uh, diversity, and uh, people. Uh, for example, who in 1975 would have uh, been reluctant to say, I don't believe in God, uh, now obviously know that they've got the uh, cultural green light and they have the religious green light from groups even to express ambivalence. And, uh, and so I think that's another thing that's showing up here, just simply uh, the, the difference in the openness that we have toward people who are, are willing to take a shot at saying, look, yeah. I, I frankly don't, I'm not sure I believe in God at all.
0: And I do wonder, and I wonder if you've ever noticed in, in the data, because, you know, you, you look back to 1975, and, and we've had crises, we've had tough times, certainly 2020 represents yeah. all of that, whether those kind of circumstances lead to people questioning God or abandoning religion, or whether it brings people back to religion, you know, people finding solace in, in God or their religious views. Have you ever noticed a, a trend one way or the other when we look at well, maybe not circumstances exactly like this, but we, we talk about difficult times. You no, know,
2: obviously an important uh, question you're raising, and undoubtedly listeners are thinking, what's happening with respect to belief uh, doing during something uh, like we've experienced in the last year? And uh, we are monitoring things. I, I want to emphasize that we are just literally looking at data that's hot off the press, and we were, for example, over the next uh, couple of months, I'm wanting to look at the relationship between, uh, uh, because we've got a lot of data on it, relationship between people, say, believing in God, being actively involved in religious, in religious groups, and how well they've handled the pandemic, uh, the extent to which uh, they've been experiencing a sense of, of being alone and, uh, and the feeling like uh, these are pretty desperate times, versus feeling that they also have a resource in the, in the sense of their faith. And, and we are, I mean, I'm not meaning to skirt that, it's just that we haven't got into some yeah. of those analyses yet. But yeah, those, those are critical questions. On the, on the surface, uh, the actual belief in God issue, if we just focus on that... We've got we've got comparable data for five years ago. The levels at this point have not dropped very very much from what they were five years ago, but they have dropped a bit. And uh, over the next while, we've got got the obvious data and information on the pandemic and its effects. And uh, we want to take a real good look at that. So, Rob, if you will have me back in about two months or so, I can speak a, you know, a, a little bit
0: more clearly about. We got that. a deal? Yeah, we'll yeah. do that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, we'll have an opportunity maybe to. to to unpack that in a little more detail um, so when we talk about these these broader trends and, and getting back to some of what we can track you know I mean you know just a, a more diverse society maybe more uh, social acceptance in, in being publicly uh, atheist or, or agnostic that, that, that explains a lot of these trends yeah um, what's your sense of why this matters why it's an important metric in engaging how the country's changing and evolving Mm-hmm.
2: Well, when we started monitoring this stuff way back in 1975, uh, it was with uh, the effort, uh, or the, you know, we had the gold in mind, and, and we're putting the effort into trying to try understand Canada in a fairly comprehensive way. And uh, the first study uh, actually had a subtitle of uh, an examination of deviance, diversity and devotion in Canada. We're looking at everything as far as Canadian life. And religion at that point, uh, particularly important. Hard for a lot of people to realize that uh, if we backed up a little bit beyond that to 1945, at that point, something like six in ten Canadians claimed they were attending services on a weekly basis, uh, Rob. And so when you look at uh, involvement in religious groups and the role that religious groups were playing, uh, pretty central to that, at that uh, stage in Canadian life. And so in the course of our trying to understand uh, what has been taking place in Canada, and I, I should just say as a quick uh, thing in brackets here, uh, that uh, when we did the survey in 1975, it was a one-shot survey, and we never certainly planned to do a series, heaven forbid, right through uh, until this point in time. Mm-hmm. But but it's been a matter of, of saying religion has has had an important place in Canadian life and Canadian lives, and we started with that that premise in nineteen seventy five and uh, fortunately, I think uh, I've been in a position then to monitor. Uh, Canadian, uh, culture as a whole, and uh, as part of that, to monitor, uh, religion in the country. And, uh, important, uh, then I'd simply say just because of its prominence at that point in time. So obviously some listeners right now could say, well, why are you bothering with religion given the fact that there's been this big drop off, uh, from some 60% as far as uh, regular attendance down to maybe 15% at this point in time. Well, it's just that we, we started on that, uh, on that and we've uh, continued to follow things over time. For the record, uh, Rob, you know, we've got other things, and maybe we can chat with you another time on on some Mm -hmm. some other things that we've been monitoring over time. But, for example, certainly intergroup relations as a whole is part of the diversity issue. Looking at that and looking at something, for example, like attitudes toward racial intermarriage and uh, seeing, for example, that back in 1975, would you believe... Uh, that forty percent of Canadians didn't, didn't approve of uh, of whites and blacks marrying each other at that that point, and obviously that's down to about two percent at this stage in time. So we've been monitoring a lot of things, and uh, religion, because again of its role historically in Canadian life, started on the on the on the trip, and we've just continued to stay on the on the on the flights. <laughs>
0: Given the the trends we've seen since 1975, it it, it certainly implies that there is a generational divide. Um, but but are the numbers that cut and dry? What what differences do we see between younger and older Canadians?
2: Oh, and if you're well, if you're talking specifically about religion and talking about religious beliefs, uh, one of the, one of the analyses, or I should say, one of the components of our analysis that's been really important is to look, for example, at millennials and how they're uh, how they're shaping when it comes to behavior and then beliefs and practices. Um, and what we've been finding here, Rob, is that uh, the pattern is pretty clear. Uh, involvement, uh, and I think this would, would resonate with people. We, my line always is that there's something w- wrong with our research if people don't recognize themselves in what we're finding. <laughs> and I think most people would, would recognize that there's been a significant drop-off in terms of involvement in organized religion. And uh, with uh, the, the, the expectation is that as we move, for example, from uh, baby boomers through Gen Xers to millennials, we're going to see a, a continuous drop-off. We're actually finding with millennials, uh, and, and so we're looking at, uh, at, at younger Canadians, and we're, we've actually been finding that, that the drop-off as far as participation in organized religion, I wouldn't say has stopped, but it hasn't continued on as we've moved uh, from boomers to, through to, to millennials. Uh, one thing that, that is really intriguing is if you look at uh, religious beliefs coming back for example to something like belief in God and in our surveys we've not only asked, not in the most recent but uh, five years ago uh, for example we asked not only about belief in God but we gave people an item uh, that we've been using from time to time and that's the God or higher power uh, cares about me personally. Well what we've been finding is that uh, millennials are, are hanging really tough with respect to items like that. They're no less likely to embrace supernatural beliefs as a whole and uh... but the participation in organized religion uh... has uh, had dropped off with particularly with Xers, but by the time we've got to millennials things have got a little bit more steady my verbose way of saying rob that uh... when we're looking at intergenerational patterns A rule of thumb, uh, there has been a drop-off in terms of uh, involvement in organized religion. This seems to have stopped to some extent with millennials. When it comes to supernatural beliefs, no signs that Canadians are, are, are rejecting supernatural beliefs. They still hold a wide, wide range of beliefs in the supernatural.
0: Well, it's interesting. People can uh, see the numbers. you got some of this uh, up on your own personal website, which is reginaldbibby.com. Reg, we'll leave it there. As I say, we'll, we'll talk again uh, in, in early 2021. But appreciate you making some time for us here today, and all the best to well, you. Uh,
2: th- thanks so very much, and very best to you, Rob. We'll look forward to chatting with you again.
0: Likewise. Appreciate it. Bye now. Dr. Reg Bibby, sociologist, University of Lethbridge. Reginaldbibby.com is his website. If you want to see some of these numbers. Uh, Belief in God, so not surprisingly, 55 plus, 68%, 18 to 34, 51%, so you see a difference there. It's interesting, too, you go province by province. For example, Saskatchewan, 79% say they believe in God. Quebec, 56%. Where would you guess that Alberta falls? 54% is the number in Alberta. It's interesting, isn't it? Welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you here. So this story from yesterday, and, and, and this is, I, I think, of relevance to Canadians, and it underscores, I, I think, a number of, of things. Germany's UN envoy, during his last scheduled UN Security Council meeting, appealed to China to free two detained Canadians, prompting China's deputy UN envoy to respond, quote, out of the bottom of my heart, good riddance. Germany finishes a two-year term on the 15-member council at the end of the month, Uh, Their ambassador, who's retiring after more than 40 years, uh, said in his remarks, quote, let me end my tenure on the Security Council by appealing to my Chinese colleagues to ask Beijing for the release of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Christmas is the right moment for such a gesture. And obviously, the Chinese told him what he could do with his request. So, look, I mean, it speaks to, I I think, a positive sign that, that we've got allies willing to stand up for these matters. We should make sure that we have their back in return. I think it underscores the challenge of dealing with a belligerent uh, actor like China. And I think it also underscores the weakness of, of the United Nations. China, as a, a permanent member of the Security Council with a veto, feels quite comfortable in the presence of the rest of the UN Security Council uh, to tell Germany to take a hike. So, if, if multilateralism isn't the answer to all of this, what, what is? So it, it's interesting timing. We get this story today and uh, we get the release of this, um, latest commentary from uh, the McDonald Laurier Institute on expanding the toolkit, how mini lateralism can help fill the void left by failing international institutions. Joining us uh, to talk more about it is uh, one of the authors of this piece, uh, Dr. Balkin Devlin, joins us, a senior fellow at the McDonough laurier Institute, a, uh, adjunct research professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, also super forecaster for Good Judgment Incorporated. Dr. Devlin, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, let me get your thoughts on, on what transpired before the UN Security Council there yesterday. I mean, it was encouraging to see Germany have our back, but... China's response. where well, that was that was something else.
3: Indeed, I mean, um, this is the one of the latest uh, of, of their so called wolf warrior diplomacy uh, attempts, which basically acting all sort of British and rude and not very diplomatic way because they think they can get away with it. Um, and this is just the last sort of example of that, and, and and it is a quite clear example that this is not only targeting. Countries like Canada, which, you know, uh, of countries that they, they, they kidnap the citizens of, um, but also other important uh, trading partners like Germany. I mean, if you look at it, Canada, after all, doesn't have of that large of a trade relationship with China. It's about 4% of our trade goes there. Um, for, for Germany, it's a lot more. And they do act in that particular way, in an aggressive way um, towards Germany as well. And it, as we suggested, it actually come in a sort of a very symbolic time as we wrap up at Macdonald-Laurier Institute, a, a project a, Six-month project uh, together with Konrad Adenauer Stiftung, in which a German, uh, major German foundation, um, in which we explore how Germany and Canada work together um, and, and protect our values and interests uh, in this new emerging world order. So um, there is a lot to be uh, told about working with allies like Germany, who uh, end up uh, on the on the receiving end. Of, of the Chinese insults um, and yeah. uh, perhaps later on actions uh, like Canada does right now.
0: Well, we saw it with Germany. We've seen it recently with Australia, another example. You know, exactly. China is not afraid to throw its weight around. No. Um, so. When, when we look at how to respond, and this is you know this concept of minilateralism is interesting because I, I think we see that you know trying to rely on institutions like the United Nations to resolve these issues that's not getting us anywhere. So what does the approach of minilateralism look like?
3: Um, two things that are, I think important here one uh, it is important to highlight that the minilateralism is not meant to supplant um, uh, multilateralism in every aspect. In other words, mm-hmm. it is an addition to protecting our values on specific issue areas and working with like-minded states. So it is right. not either or, but it is both. Um, and the, the the primary reason why we need to engage in I multilateralism, mean, which you know is basically uh, coming together with a limited set of partners that share your values and interests and working with them instead of. inviting everyone to the table and trying to sort things out, is precisely the reason you highlighted that the the existing multilateral institutions, such as the United Nations, such as WHO, such as WTO, are not necessarily solving the the problems that we have and are not protecting and promoting our interests. And therefore, we need to look at working with partners that we share a common set of interests And a common set of values to protect those values and interests and this is nothing new i mean the whole idea of of transatlantic community the nato is a minilateral institution it is not open to anybody it is open to top set of states in in the world but lately the the mantra in the past 10 15 20 years perhaps became you know multilateralism and cooperation is good for its own sake and i think that's what we'd like to highlight there that The uh, working with others, including our adversaries in a multilateral setting, is or should be um, a a means to an end, not an end in itself. So, uh, you know, repeating the mantra of we should do things in a multilateral setting is meaningless without identifying why we are doing it and what are the ends that we would like to achieve. And minilateralism and, and you know, expanding on our minilateral, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. alliances from five Eyes. To a, a broader engagement with democracies in the Pacific, etc., is is better positioned to serve Canada's interests when the global multilateral institutions, such as the UN, uh, are failing uh, to protect uh, Canadians uh, and and others.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it's a true. I mean, you know, there are... When I think about Canada and I think about the United States, there's a similar question that comes to mind. I mean, is Canada a reliable ally? Is the United States still a reliable ally? You know, I, I think you asked the question for different reasons, but, you know, there are some challenges in terms of whether our allies can depend on us and, and whether the rest of us can all depend on the United States still. And and that's precisely one of the reasons
3: that we highlighted why we need to engage in a more sort of tailored approach to to unilateralism is the fact that increasingly the United States is turning inwards. In the past four years, to sort of make it quite clear that us as well as our other allies in Europe and elsewhere uh, may not be uh, able to rely on the United States doing the right thing all the time. And therefore, we need to work together uh, to to be able to uphold this rules based international order that we benefited significantly over the past 70 years, um, but we can't do it alone. We need to partner up with others like Germany, uh, like Australia, you know, like uh, Japan. So we need to work together because individually each ally may or may not uh, you know, fulfill or come through uh, on, in, the, in, in certain, certain circumstances. And the last four years with the United States showed that. So we cannot, <laughs> uh, we don't have the luxury anymore of, of being complacent that and, and, and you know, being safe in the knowledge that, well, the U.S. will maintain the international order, we can free ride on that. We don't have right. to worry about it. Uh, so we have to do more. We have to take a greater role because that became very obvious that that's the only way we could protect our values and there are willing allies out there like germany and japan and others uh, that will work with us to um to to fill in that leadership gap that the united states is unfortunately leaving more and more uh in the past few years
0: but I think that, that means Canada, not, not just being willing to play uh, uh, more of a leadership role, but being w- willing to, to stand on our principles. Uh, oftentimes, we're reluctant to do so. We, we don't want to ruffle feathers. We, we don't want to alienate uh, other member states of the United Nations. We just went through a campaign of trying to get on the UN Security Council, where you know, we were just trying to make nice with everybody. So at, at times, we, we are reluctant, aren't we, to, to, you yeah. know, to really stand on our principles?
3: Yes, and I think we, we do have, uh, let me plug in a, 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 a public opinion poll that we'll be releasing um, soon after, after the holidays um, that is a part of this project, and this is the last part of it, where we ask Canadians, what would you want Canada to do in terms of standing up for our values? And a sneak peek of that is that they are, uh, Canadians more broadly, um, wants Canada to stand out for our principles and values, even if that means standing up um, to and not going together with whatever the UN is wanting. Right, so we mm-hmm. do need to stand up for that, um, and we re- recognize that you're know, trying to please a crowd pleaser is not a way to conduct your uh, international relations. Right. But also, we have to recognize that. Canada is not big enough or large enough, powerful enough to get its way alone in, in the international system. And that's why we need allies. We need countries that share our values and share our common interests uh, that we can work together, which would enable us to amplify um, our our power and punch above our weight. At this stage, we are actually pension, punching below our weight. But if we work together with these uh, with these partners and allies, we could actually punch above uh, above our our power our power position, and that's why it's important to you know make it clear what we stand for and stand up for our allies and for our values. Because being a crowd pleaser <laughs> is not the way to <laughs> to go
0: promote one's national interests and values. Indeed. Well, we'll leave it there. We'll let people know they can read uh, this piece for themselves and and much more, as mentioned, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. dot uh, Dr. Devlin, thanks for joining us here today. Really appreciate this.
3: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. All the best to you. Take care. Uh, Balkan Devlin, Senior Fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute, also Adjunct Research Professor, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University.